Hi guys, it's Hannah with Rights and Relationships. Today is, um, it's gonna be a little less structured than it has been. This is kind of me thinking out loud a little bit, but I wanted to unpack some things that I have been sitting with as a pro-choice advocate and especially as a white woman. I read two books this week. Reproductive Justice and Introduction by Loretta J. Ross and Ricky Solinger and Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organized for Reproductive Justice by Jail Selman, Marlene Gerber-Fried, Loretta Ross, and Elena Gutierrez. And these books had a lot of information. The first one, Reproductive Justice, is, I'll read the back, I guess, is a first of its kind primer that provides a comprehensive yet succinct description of the field. Reproductive justice introduces students to an intersexual analysis of race, class, and gender politics. So it's really, I loved this book. Um, it was just published last year and it really got me thinking about some things. And then I read Undivided Rights, which focuses on some different case studies of women of color organizing different movements that fit their needs within the reproductive justice framework. And I have defined reproductive justice before, but I want to kind of expand on that. Last episode, I talked about isolating the extremists and kind of focusing on the pro-choice pro-life dichotomy. You know, when I read these things, I, I'm like, yes, yes, I agree with this. This makes absolute sense, but I really, I really want to make sure that I include these viewpoints and, like I said, try to be as inclusive as possible, but I can't do that if I am just focusing on pro-choice versus pro-life, which is kind of kind of where I started with this. You know, we've talked about birth control and abortion, and I feel like I've done an okay job being inclusive, but I want to do better. And these books really gave me some insight, really enlightened me. They had some really good critiques of the mainstream pro-choice movement. I think originally I wanted to protect and advocate for abortion rights specifically. I personally feel like that abortion and access to it are consistently under attack. And a lot of that I feel like stems from fear of losing that right. But right now I, I could go get an abortion if I needed to. You know, the reality is that reproductive justice is more than, more than being pro-choice. Um, there's a quote from Reproductive Justice and Introduction. Reproductive justice was born from the claims of women of color that they had the right to be sexual persons and to be fertile. They claim the right to decide to become parents and the right to the resources they needed to take care of their children. They also claim the right to manage their fertility by having access to contraception and abortion services. I started taking an interest in pro-choice issues because I had friends and loved ones that had experienced that. Specifically, they had experienced abortion, and I became worried for them and myself about those rights disappearing. There was an article I recently saw that had the title, it was something like, White Women Stop Waiting for the Dystopian Future to Arrive um, in Regards to Reproductive Health, because it's already a reality for so many women of color. So as much as I began this journey wanting to protect the legality of abortion, which is really what being pro-choice is. I need to expand that way of thinking. I need to grow, and I need to learn. And of course, you know, 
reproductive justice is not just for women of color, but women of color have done a much better job than the mainstream, mainly white pro-choice movement has of encompassing what it really means to be for reproductive justice. And I mean, they really focus on the three things that reproductive justice is comprised of. It's the right not to have a child, the right to have a child, and the right to parent children in safe and healthy environments. And the mainstream pro-choice movement, including myself, has really, really focused on that first one, the right not to have a child. And, you know, I'm not saying that that's not important. Of course it is. The access to abortion and contraceptives is most certainly important for bodily autonomy, but it needs to be about more than that. I mean, all three of those things are equally important, and they don't feel that way. Um, when we hear about, you know, pro-choice movements in the media, in 2005, there was an essay called A New Vision for Reproductive Justice, written by Asian Communities for Reproductive Justice, um, which is now called Forward Together. Um, and they define the three kind of important things within this struggle for human rights as well as social justice. And so the three things are reproductive health, reproductive rights, and reproductive justice. They define reproductive health as a framework that looks at service delivery and addresses the reproductive health needs of individual women. It focuses on the lack of healthcare services and info, including research and health data. Reproductive rights is concerned with protecting individual women's legal right to reproductive health services, particularly abortion, uh, which is often called the pro-choice movement. It addresses the lack of legal protection and weak enforcement of laws to protect individual women's reproductive choices regarding those services. And reproductive justice identifies how reproductive oppression is the result of the intersection of multiple oppressions and is inherently connected to the struggle for social justice and human rights. In my first episode, I, I defined reproductive justice. That was created by the Sister Song Collective, basically, an organization created by women of color of course, you know, that doesn't mean that reproductive justice is just for women of color, but the pro-choice movement has kind of co-opted that language. You know, we've started to hear reproductive justice and rights, and it's important that we actually embody what that means, and we make sure that our work reflects that. And so... I feel like the language has kind of gotten a little muddled, especially in the last several years. I think the pro-choice movement is trying to be more inclusive, but that's hard to do. One, when you focus on simply abortion and access, and then, you know, you don't always address the needs of marginalized people and women of color specifically. And there's another quote that says, Reproductive justice does not insist that one set of meanings or experiences describes the experiences of all people. On the contrary, reproductive justice insists that no particular reproductive experience is superior to or more authentic than other experiences. It is universally applicable because every human being has the same human rights. You know, and that was one of those things that I totally and completely agree with. And I think that a lot of the women in the mainstream pro-choice movement would feel the same way. Um, you know, obviously storytelling is a very powerful mechanism that we have to show that there's a wide array of experiences, a wide array of feelings, but what 
the mainstream movement and in particularly white women. A lot of them do ignore that pro-choice is kind of a misnomer. You know, they, they advocate for individual women's choice. You know, regardless of what that choice is, you know, we support, we support it. And that's important, that's crucial. But when you look at different contexts and intersections, you realize that choice kind of becomes arbitrary. And I think the pro-choice movement is trying to be more inclusive, but they kind of forget that message that they agree with is that, you know, one experience is not the experience of all. Um, and they fail to realize these differences are because of race and class and immigration status and environmental impacts. This book states that not everyone is oppressed the same way or at the same time or by the same forces. That's something that the mainstream movement forgets. And unfortunately, that's something that I, that I haven't done a great job of exemplifying because we get so focused on our own oppression um, and the ways that we are oppressed that we forget that oppression is a constant. Um, you know, it's a shared human experience, but oppression is different for everybody. And so I really want to reframe and kind of unpack some things that I could do better. A lot of times uh, the pro-choice movement does focus on the economic matters that people face when trying to access abortion and reproductive health care services, but they fail to realize that it's a lot more than just an economic standing that influences people's quote-unquote choices. Another quote, in addition to economic matters, a person deciding whether to get pregnant, to stay pregnant, or to be a mother might be pressed by family values, religious beliefs, work or educational responsibilities, and access to appropriate medical care, daycare, and other necessities. The pro-choice movement really focuses on access to abortion, access to these healthcare services, but what I learned from these books and from women of color is that these individuals really, you know, they're looking at their whole communities. The pro-choice movement is so focused on individual rights that it almost doesn't look at the whole picture of a community, of different groups of people. It needs to include more than access to the clinic. It needs to include these things like better incomes, better school systems, gentrification. There's a lot. I really enjoyed this reproductive justice book. Um, like I said, it was very comprehensive. You know, I'm sitting here flipping through it again, and, and it says, The women of color activists also pointed out that choice quote-unquote, as conceived by white feminists, focused in almost entirely on a woman's ability to prevent conception and motherhood. And looking at not only personal histories, but community histories, racial, ethnic, economic histories, you know, that their reproduction is tied to. The pro-choice movement, it would be nice to say that they focus on all women. You know, they want us to come together as women, as as people who can give birth, and yet not all of them use that inclusive language. They ignore that black women, Latina women, um, Asian women, they're not just women. They are black and a woman, you know, and those things can't be separated. You know, in this introduction, they say once more drawing from the histories of their peoples, their families, and their communities, reproductive justice activists maintain that reproductive safety and dignity depended on having the resources to get good medical care and decent housing, 
to have a job that paid a living wage, to live without police harassment, to live free of racism in a physically healthy environment. And, you know, all of these are fundamental. All of these, not just legal access to contraception and abortion. You know, as I've expressed before, our country, our judicial system was founded on genocide, imperialism, racism, and therefore our judicial system reflects that. And so legality for white women is not the same as what it would be for women of color or poor women. There's another good quote. There's a few good quotes, actually, that expand on that idea. Uh, One says, invoking individual rights or even constitutional protections of those rights does not accomplish what could in fact be accomplished through altered power relations, including the shifting of resources to people who currently lack them. And that's really important. I think, you know, after Roe v. Wade, a lot more people had access to abortion services. And it's important to realize that gaining these rights or gaining these constitutional protections is still almost abstract because, again, it's very much focused on individuals um, rather than communities of people and these completely diverse lived experiences show that the results of these legalities have different effects on different people than they intend to. And I think that's really important. I think that's something that I need to shift my focus away from. We talk about human rights and, you know, getting the right to do whatever. And again, that has many different meanings for many different people. And so there's a quote from Robin West in this book um, that really encompasses this. It says, rights primarily protect property, profits, contracts, and the current power structure far more powerfully then they protect the basic needs of vulnerable people. And so I kind of, I, I just want you to sit with that for a minute because I I certainly did. I still am. I want to continue to have that in mind as I continue my education and go into a social work career that the idea of rights is a really nice thing to have, but it's basically an abstract idea because she's she's very much right. And yeah, I am, you know, talking mostly directly to white women um, or white people in the pro-choice movement, because again, that's what the pro-choice movement really has narrowed its focus to, is keeping uh, these rights, this right to abortion, uh, when in reality that's not so much a right for certain people. There isn't much choice in the matter. I'm going to read that quote again, and I know it's weird and difficult, and and it's uncomfortable for white people to kind of look outside of their perspective, you know. Rights primarily protect property, profits, contracts, and the current power structure far more powerfully than they protect the basic needs of vulnerable people. For for white people, that just completely turns our judicial system and our, our basic rights on their head. It's hard to see when you're not experiencing that. You know, you've grown up believing that the law will protect you, that you have certain rights that are unalienable, and that you can fight for. But in the framework of reproductive justice, it suggests that the most effective route to autonomy and dignity are community-based organizing, coalitions, alliances across race and class. 
you know, so rather than saying that courts create rights, you know, these legislators, they give us our rights. Activists, quote, believe human rights are natural, inherent, and inalienable because of one's status as a human being. That kind of suspends what white people know or have been taught to believe about human rights. This part really, I mean, I stopped reading and I just sat there and I thought about it. And again, you know, I very, I very strongly believe in and agree with these ideas. Um, you know, Robin, Robin West is absolutely right. The, the rights that we're told that we have are simply given to us by using language that still upholds power structures, um, especially that of white supremacy. I know a lot, a lot of white people who wouldn't believe that, you know, they're like, you know, they're the same people that say that racism is over because we had a black president, you know, and we look at, um, gay marriage. Oh, I don't know why, why they're still fighting, why they're still, you know, we gave them the right to marry, you know, isn't that all they wanted? And it's so much more than that. It can be hard to wrap your head around the idea that something that's in writing, that's in our constitution, is actually more of an abstract idea. When you take a look at reproductive rights, Roe v. Wade gave us the right to obtain abortions when we need them. So after Roe v. Wade, it became about rights about who pays for it. It's almost like these rights end up making things more political. And I think, you know, that's the whole idea behind saying that human rights are innate and natural because, you know, there was a time when that people just kind of lived their lives and they did what was best for them. And now we have a judicial system that tells us what's best for us, what rights we do and don't have, when in reality those should be community-based. They should be based in, I don't know, basic human respect. We got, got through Roe v. Wade, and then it became about the Hyde Amendment, which, if you don't know, that is the amendment that... Um, it's the rule that bars the use of federal funds to pay for abortions of low-income women. Quote, according to the author of the Hyde Amendment, the resourcelessness of poor women and their dependence on public health care provided an effective opportunity to pass a federal law embedding a religious objection to legal abortion. Within the language of these quote-unquote rights that we have. I mean, these legislators also establish who is worthy of having these rights and who isn't. Roe v. Wade gave us the right to abortion, but it was very soon classified as a class privilege because, you know, if Medicare, Medicaid, or any facet of the government won't pay for it, then poor women can't access it. You know, I always think it's funny when people just retort, you know, if, if you don't want to get pregnant, don't have sex. Uh, if you can't afford an abortion, don't have sex. You know, if you can't have, if you can't afford a child, don't have sex. And that's always seemed so foolish to me. That statement really, it's not even thinly veiled. It's very apparent classism. Um, and that's, that's what a lot of these rights are based in. I think, I think we, can, we can call rights privileges almost. Un unless, unless everybody has equal access to them. 
And the reality is that they don't. Abortion should not be a class privilege, but it is. Even still today, it is. And in turn, it makes sex seem like a privilege. And again, it's not. And I think Roe v. Wade was certainly very political, and it had a lot of religious opposition. Quote, Hyde modeled and validated the use of politics, not medicine, to make a health policy. You know, regardless of religious opposition, it is the use of politics. It's making these things political. And I think that's why I have such a hard time with people who identify as pro-life. Because a lot of the time, that's that's one of their, you know, that's their rhetoric that they go to. Well, just don't have sex. If you can't afford it, don't have sex. And that stems from the Hyde Amendment. Yes, there is religious connotation to this amendment. But there's another good quote um, that says... Hyde demonstrated that the most effective way to insert religious beliefs into public policy was by developing restrictions that targeted poor individuals, particularly poor people of color. I'm going to let you sit with that one for a minute because, you know, people consistently talk about religious freedom. And and again, I think that's one of the things I have a hard time with with this pro-choice, pro-life dichotomy is that it's very much centered around religion, especially the pro-life side. But when you look at the history, it has a little bit to do with religion, but it has more to do with keeping poor people and poor people of color oppressed. And I know religious people have a hard time with that because in a way it's saying that these religious beliefs are racist and classist and I think that's something that you should unpack yourself you know politicians are really good at framing these rights and amendments and whatever else in the context of religion and It sucks watching them buy into the idea that this is religious and this is for religious purposes when really if you look at the whole picture, you look at the history, you look at the impact, you realize that that's not really what it's about. And you realize that wasn't the intention to begin with. It wasn't about protecting religious freedoms It was about keeping poor people and people of color in their place. And again, I think that's why pro-lifers, they stick to the same sort of sound bites that they always do. They stick to the same rhetoric. They stick to the same religious rhetoric because if they go outside that, they're going to be admitting they believe that certain people are unfit to be parents. And I want people to understand that that's, I'm talking about pro-lifers, but really, but really I'm talking about white people, white pro-choicers and pro-lifers, you know, and and I myself am guilty of this. I fight really hard for certain rights through my own lens that I really need to step back and understand the whole context and the impact of these things that we say we're fighting for. But pro-choicers, you know, they buy into that as well. I have a difficult time with people who identify as pro-life because they fail to see the reasons why someone might need an abortion. To me, that looks like a lack of empathy. That being said, I see that same lack of empathy in the pro-choice side as well. So a lot of these laws are enacted by 
anti-abortion, you know, and pro-choicers will fight and fight and fight to get these laws reversed, uh, to get rights um, that they didn't have before. I want to give you an example of how rights are abstract and how they don't always have the impact that was intended by those who fought for those rights. We take a look at intimate partner violence, um, and there are laws, you know, protecting domestic abuse victims um, and the children of domestic abuse victims. And yet in 2006, um, there was a case where Arlena Lindley, her boyfriend, murdered her three-year-old son uh, after years of abuse. He received life in prison, but instead of trying to understand her situation, she received a 45-year sentence for abuse by omission, for failing to provide a safe environment. It's not just pro-lifers that have these rhetorics. There are pro-choice people out there who say, well, why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you just leave the abusive situation you were in? And here's another place where legality and rights are abstract. You know, drug addicts can have their paternal rights terminated. They they lose their status completely without a chance to ever get it back. When policymakers and politicians talk about these things and these people, you know, they frame poor people as poor decision makers. You know, there's pro-choice people that, you know, talk about welfare and stop having kids if you're on welfare, stop having so many kids, you know. The reality is that these, quote, poor decisions come from a lack of support, um, a lack of uh, guarantee to these rights. These decisions that these people make are because they don't have any other options. Legality doesn't mean that something is right. And I used to try not to use that phrase because I know that pro-lifers look at that or hear that and say, well, abortion's legal, that doesn't make it right. Looking at it in a different context. I am now looking at it in a different context because laws and rights that us white women have, they're not the same. We've been told that they're the same. We may believe that they're the same. The fact is that the impact of these laws is not the same for poor people and people of color. Lynn Paltrow, the executive director of the National Association uh, for Pregnant Women, says that the biggest threats to life, born and unborn, do not come from mommies, but rather from poverty, barriers to health care, persistent racism, and environmental hazards. Prosecutions like these, like the War on Drugs, the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, they increase the risk to babies by frightening women away from care and using tax dollars to expand the criminal justice system rather than to fund nurse-family partnerships that actually protect the health of children. You know, some of these were enacted by pro-life politicians. Some of them were enacted by pro-choice politicians. Regardless of the intention of these, the reality is that they completely ignore the other factors that contribute to things like poverty, like drug addiction, like the fact that healthcare providers can be racist and, you know, they treat people of color differently than they treat their white patients. And, you know, there's another interesting tidbit uh, when looking at drug addiction. Currently, 18 states consider drug use while pregnant to be de facto child abuse. These states will prosecute pregnant women. They will test them and their babies without consent for drugs, 
um, and will, in fact, remove the child from the mother's care once it's born, if tested positive. But then you look at something like alcohol. Pregnant women who use alcohol, um, which can result in fetal alcohol syndrome and is much more dangerous, uh, they're not prosecuted. Um, there are no laws uh, regarding alcohol use and pregnancy, and it's treated like a public health issue. Um, they're treated for their addiction. They're sent to mental health facilities. And so it's things like that, how our judicial system and really how we feel as a country about poor people and people of other races. And so it, it really illuminates the stark contrast between the people we view as fit and unfit to be mothers or parents, as well as those unfit and fit to receive treatment. What women of color have taught me and their organizations have really tried to accomplish is being completely inclusive, is breaking down that pro-choice and pro-life dichotomy where their organizations have a lot of different people in them who have a lot of different feelings about abortion and birth control. But that doesn't matter because their goal is the same. You know, just like pro-life women, you know, they want people to choose life. How are you going to guarantee that these people have the support that they need. And, you know, and I think that's what these groups focus on is those external factors, the roots of why women choose abortion, low-paying jobs. They don't have health insurance. You know, maybe they're immigrants and they're not qualified for that. This has really just made me think about, I don't want to say that, you know, the pro-choice and pro-life debate is trivial, but it's it's very narrow, you know, and on the pro-choice side of that, there's women who, you know, will really fight for a woman's right to get an abortion, but kind of ignore a woman's right to have a child um, and to parent that child safely. Um, and what that looks like. Like in the last episode, I talked about isolating extremists. But more than that, I think we we all, you know, regardless of our feelings about abortion, we all kind of have to suspend those um, and realize that those are personal beliefs and then explore the ways that we can best exemplify those beliefs without actually pushing those beliefs on others. And I I think women of color have done a superb job of that. In Undivided Rights, um, they go through uh, different case studies of um, different organizations. And the majority of these have really taken a pro-choice stance. And, you know, so maybe they've lost some members who very, very strongly believe that abortion is murder. But the reality is, is that they work together with women of all walks of life, from all beliefs, and they find a common goal. Last episode, I said, you know, I think we have a lot more similarities than differences, and I still believe that, and... I even almost, you know, uh, even more strongly believe it now that I've read these. What that means, especially for white women, is that take a back seat and listen for a while. Listen to all the reasons and the experiences that these people had. And that's reasons for having an abortion, for having a kid or another kid, for you know, making certain parenting decisions. That's really what reproductive justice is about, is encompassing all of those, understanding that our stories are not the same, never will be, uh, our reasons are not the same, and we may disagree 
with some of those reasons, but that's not your choice to make. And the goal is to figure out how to best support these women and their decisions. You know, regardless of your feelings about the decisions, how do you best support these women? And what does that look like to you? What actions can you actually take to do that, to achieve that goal, to create a more just and supportive community and society? And so that's why things like environmental concerns, housing and gentrification, school location and the quality of schools and education, the lack of funding for anything. So for pro-life women, that means rethinking and understanding why you believe what you do. And I think that's important for everybody. I think it's important to understand why we believe what we do, where it came from. For pro-life women, that means taking a look at how you're best exemplifying that. One of the things I have a hard time with, in my own experience, pro-life women don't exemplify their beliefs. You know, there's a lot of them that are against government assistance, and yet they still want to try to push women to have children that they can't afford. They're against abortion, but they also don't want the government to pay for these children. There's another good quote in here that says, Motherhood is deeply politicized, both as a means to control women and as a means by which women seek to gain control over their lives. And that's another one I kind of want you to sit with because, you know, there are pro-life women that will vehemently disagree. You know, they're, they're not submissive. Motherhood is not um, a way to control women. You know, it's a, it's a gift. And the fact is it can be both, and it is both. And it takes a minute to really understand why that is and how it can be both. The reality is we live in a patriarchal society where men have had the majority of the say when it comes to laws and rights and sometimes these decisions. Another quote says, Reproductive justice demands that the state not unduly interfere with women's reproductive decision-making, but also insists that the state has an obligation to help create the conditions for women to exercise their decisions without coercion and, without so and with social supports. And again, it's frustrating when people say that the government shouldn't, you know, if if they don't get a say, then they shouldn't have to provide certain supports. And that's frustrating because that's what a government is supposed to do. It's not supposed to influence individual decisions. It's not supposed to have a say in those. But the government still has an obligation to society as a whole to provide for their people that they say they provide for and care about. And these conditions that they should help create will get women out of poverty, will provide for their children, um, will provide people good, solid education. The state has an obligation to its people. Certain people hear that and they think about themselves they think about their own money, um, and that means that my taxes are going to people who don't work as hard as me. And the reality is that that money goes to people who don't have the same opportunities as you, um, that don't have the same access that you do. You know, conservatives have done a good job of convincing white people, um, and not just white conservatives, white people, that, quote, they are the victims of an activist government that irresponsibly showers benefits on undeserving people of color and immigrants while taking, 
taking advantage of the hardworking white people who made this country great, end quote. White people, I mean, you've really bought into this idea that you're superior. And the fact is that I don't think anybody gets to dictate who is deserving and undeserving. The fact that we are human beings means that we are deserving of proper care. And yeah, that means financial care. But again, I want to reiterate that that's not just pro-lifers, um, and it's not just conservatives. It comes from a culture of white supremacy. And so that's why it's kind of interesting that people are so adamantly against government assistance. Because one, it's really not that much money. And two, there's very little that our government actually does to create these conditions that allow us to live our lives to the fullest, um, that allow poor people and people of color to live their lives to the fullest. Certainly they have an obligation to take care of their citizens, but the fact is that there's a limit to what they will provide because if they go too far, it threatens the power structures. It threatens white supremacy. You know, they, they make inequality or um, class divides seem like it's, it's a natural thing. Um, it's because of these poor decisions that these poor people make. You know, it's that their poverty is their own fault. And in reality, it's not. It's the state's fault. It's our government's fault. And it's because they won't give up their power. You know, that's why, that's why the idea of um, abortion and white women not wanting to have children is so threatening. And it's why the anti-abortion movement is rooted in white supremacy and racism and classism. And the problem is that a lot of white Americans still blame violence and still blame racism on individuals and their individual psychology. You know, hatred of other people is just a, a psychologically based problem, and it's not. Racism isn't a mental illness. It's something that all of us as white people were socialized with. It takes a lot. It's going to take a lot for us to shift our thinking and our actions to really fight this and fight for others. And so, you know, I talk about how it's rooted in racism and whatnot. And so it's important to look at the history and it's important to look at different ideas that have evolved from that history, like the idea of chastity um, and being chast. That comes from that comes from white men believing that white women were the nation's most precious resource because they could provide more white children to build this nation. You know, and that's that's why laws about contraception and abortion started arising in the 19th century is because they wanted to keep building this country on whiteness and they needed more white people to do that. And, you know, fast forward a little bit, you get to um, the era just before Roe v. Wade. You look at the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s. White women who got pregnant were often sent away uh, for nine months until, uh, if they could afford it, that is, until they gave birth, which at that point... They were coerced, um, they were pressured, uh, they were pressed to give their children away, and they were pressed to give them away to a 
proper married white couple because that was the idea of a proper family, of a financially stable family. And so when anti-abortion laws really became prominent and were very heavily enforced, it was mostly white women who came to the attention of the law and the media and the community because, not because they believed they were murdering children or babies, but because they were murdering their own destiny, um, motherhood, and they needed to rededicate themselves to proper female norms. And so that's really where the idea of control came from, specifically white men's control over women's bodies came from. It's not women's idea of motherhood. It was men's idea of motherhood that they wanted to enforce. Because women, women have all sorts of different opinions on motherhood and what it means to be a mother and when, if ever, they want to do that. Whereas looking through a historical context, men's definition of motherhood equaled submission and control. And so again, it's not just liberals and conservatives. It's not just pro-choice and pro-life. It is about upholding the power structures, specifically of men, specifically of white men and white supremacy. So we started talking about choice after Roe v. Wade and the concept of choice, individual choice. Another quote from the book says, women of color activists pointed out that the concept of choice masks the different economic, political, and environmental contexts in which women live their reproductive lives. Choice disguises the ways that laws, policies, and public officials differently punish or reward the childbearing of different groups of women, as well as the different degrees of access women have to health care and other resources necessary to manage sex, fertility, and maternity. You know, particularly pro-choice advocates and activists really need to look beyond the legality of abortion and really take a look at how these laws and policies actually impact different groups of people. And pro-lifers need to look beyond abortion and religion and examine the effects of these laws and policies that they helped enact really hurt women and children. And I think they need to stop focusing so much on abortion and really step up to the pro-life label. And I think that goes for both sides. I think that looking at the legality of abortion, regardless of feelings on abortion, it restricts those people from really making a difference, a long-term difference in the lives of people who can get pregnant and their children and their families and their communities. It's about reproductive safety and dignity and the resources that allow those. And that means quality medical care and quality housing, uh, quality wages as well as looking at the threat of racism, classism, and sexism in our own government and within our own laws and policies. Reproductive justice really aims to have safe, accessible, and affordable resources. You know, regardless of what an individual chooses to do with 
their pregnancy. And if we can guarantee these things, these the safety and dignity, then the concept of choice becomes more of a reality. The book Undivided Rights says that the failure of white women to address their internalized racism and classism and to appreciate the power of race and class dynamics to influence activist agendas has sometimes had disastrous political results, specifically when initiatives promoted by the mainstream movement have actually turned out to limit the reproductive rights of women of color and poor women. Because the pro-choice movement is so narrowly focused on abortion rights, you know, it made it possible to be pro-choice and still allow for things like like restrictions on parental involvement laws and the bans on public funding of abortion to happen. Pro-choice activists, including myself, have fought so hard for their rights and what they think is the rights for all women. But while sexism affects all women, certainly... It affects all women differently because of these intersections on race and class and gender identity and sexuality. I've expressed the idea that the matter of abortion isn't just black and white. You know, it's not a yes or no decision. It's very much, it's very complex and personal decision. But the fact is that reproductive health in general, is very personal. And if we don't take a look at the external factors that influence those decisions or lack of decisions, then we're never going to get anywhere. You know, I think we need to look at why women get abortions. We need to look at why people are in the position that they are in how to help them in that current situation, but also how to improve the environment that created that situation. Again, regardless of what their choices are, we have to look at what brought them to that in the first place and How do we bring people out of poverty, out of drug addiction? How do we combat police brutality and racism? How do we get rid of the fear that so many of these women of color have of healthcare in general? The National Asian Women's Health Organization has a really good definition of cultural competency. They say it refers to the continually developing ability to respond to individuals of different cultures in a way that is sensitive to and respectful of the differences that exist between cultures. In a healthcare setting, this requires providers to be aware of the cultural values and beliefs of clients and to understand how these factors influence their health-seeking attitudes and behaviors. We, we all need to be competent and aware of how culture and, and different cultural values and beliefs really affect the decisions of people. In a healthcare setting, that's, it's vital. There's a lot of bias in medicine. There's a lot of racism in medicine, unfortunately. Our government, they frame it as they're irresponsible. Um, They don't take care of their health the way they need to. They have higher rates of STDs, higher rates of teen pregnancies because they're just uh, incompetent. And the reality is, is that they have reason to fear these doctors and these, and our healthcare system as a whole because of the history and because of their lived experiences. And so really, 
Getting to cultural competency, it requires education and more so unlearning of biases, prejudices, everything that white people have internalized throughout their throughout their lives. And so again, we have to attack the problems at the root so we can get there. And the government's not going to do it for us. History has told us that black women and other women of color have been telling us that, and they've been doing it for themselves for decades and centuries, and they've created these communities and resources for their communities because the government didn't provide them. And so I think it's really important to continue to do that. And it shouldn't just be women of color doing the work. It needs to be all of us. And I think there are there's power in numbers, you know, and I think the pro-choice movement really tries to get those numbers and include all women, but they don't have that cultural competency that they need because they're their focus is so narrow. Um, and so what I've really learned from these books um, and from listening and learning from women of color is that we need to start in our own communities. We need to start with meeting community needs and expanding from that. And, you know, looking at these different case studies and organizations that they listed in the book Undivided Rights has really been eye-opening and inspiring because they work so hard and they, you know, they're able to focus on these community needs because these needs have been identified by the community and they've listened and they've included the community in these, in these organizations and these strides that they've made and you know I hope that in some way someday that I'm able to really show my gratitude to these women um, and women of color specifically because white women and white feminists kind of started me on my journey and but women of color have really opened my eyes and propelled me forward in understanding what it really means to be a reproductive justice ally and advocate. And so I, w I wanted to share some of that with you, and I wanted to unpack some of my own kind of internalized ideas and thoughts and I really you know I've stated that I want people to do the same uh, before but I really want you to do the same I really want you to sit with the idea that choice is a privilege it's a privileged word and no woman is free or has freedom until we all do so step outside your comfort zone. Understand that you as a listener are egocentric. Um, we all are. Uh, we have our own best interest in mind. We hear things through our own perspective. And so understanding that, listen carefully. Take notes if you want. But after you've listened, just come back to it. Come back to it with a different mindset. Come back to it in a way that doesn't center yourself, whatever that means. Particularly, I hope you don't center your whiteness and your personal fears when addressing these new ideas. Because like I said, you know, I, I focused 
so much on abortion rights and protecting the legality of abortion that everything else fell to the wayside. Everyone else fell to the wayside. And I really want to change that. I really hope to change that. Um, And I really hope to have some good conversations with people in order to help them change that for themselves. Sit with some of the things that I've said. Um, Please do check out these books. Uh, They're absolutely incredible. I know I've probably said that this book has changed my life a million times, but these books really do change my life. They change my outlook, my perspective, my way of thinking, and I'm so, so grateful for that. It's why I love social work and the reproductive justice field because there's always an opportunity for growth and development because within reproductive justice there's truly some inclusivity that gets us out of and breaks down the idea of a pro-choice pro-life dichotomy because it's about much more than that Again, the books I read were Reproductive Justice, An Introduction by Loretta J. Ross and Ricky Solinger, and the other one was Undivided Rights, Women of Color Organized for Reproductive Justice by Jail Silman, Marlene Gerber-Fried, Loretta Ross, and Elena Gutierrez. And I hope that we as a community and society can... Our differences cause us to need different things, but that doesn't mean we're all that different. The reality is we all just want dignity and respect and love and freedom. And the best way that we're going to achieve that is together. I will conclude there. (laughs) Uh... Hopefully I'm able to edit this in a way that sort of makes sense. Like I said, I was thinking out loud. I was actively trying to unpack some things as I was talking. And I hope you were able to unpack some things as you were listening. Uh, And I hope you're able to start some really good conversations that lead to actions and that allow us to take care of one another. So I'll see you next time on Rights and Relationships.